Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode on Heart to Health Talk. I'm Lin. And I'm Janine. And gosh Lin, I can't stop smiling recently. And I noticed that you've been looking a lot happier too. <laughs> I think we're not alone in this celebratory joy. At this point of the recording, the government actually announced huge changes to the measures. So we can now hang out in groups of 10, no mask outdoors. And best of all, nightlife is coming back to Singapore. Wow, it really feels like all the dark days of the pandemic is behind us as we move into the new normal. Right, that seems to be the general consensus of most people. Yet, one thing has definitely changed since 2020, and that's the way we talk about mental health. So our episode today will be covering about mental health and how the mental health landscape has changed now that we are transiting back to normal. Before we jump right into our episode, if you're comfy sharing, Lin, were there any mental health issues you experienced during the pandemic? Personally, towards the mid of 2021, I felt like I was suffering from some form of anxiety where it was a vicious cycle of not being able to eat or sleep. I unfortunately did not seek help as I only realized it after getting over that phase of life. You mentioned to me that you actually started seeking professional help. Yeah, well firstly, thanks for sharing about your experience. I actually went through quite a bit of life changes like family death, moving out, and ending things with some people. With all that was changing, plus the fact that we couldn't go out to socialize, I decided to seek help. And wow, it proved to be super beneficial because in subsequent months, I could now proudly say that I feel a lot more confident and very open to talking about my mental health journey. I'm sure your story might be similar to some of our listeners too. While it's great that we are now more open to talk about mental health, I think I've got some questions on my mind. Well, aren't you lucky because we invited Prof. John Wong, an Associate Prof, Senior Consultant for Psychiatrists at Yong Liu Lin School of Medicine NUS to the show. Hi Prof, welcome to the show. Hi Lin and hi Jenny, thanks for inviting me to your show. Hi Prof, maybe you can give us a bit of an introduction on your background and like how you got to where you are today? Oh, I see. So I uh, obviously started from the medical school and became a doctor. But along the way, in the course of my training, uh, I had good opportunity to be exposed to mental health and psychiatry posting or training. And I decided to take up a career with the military and was trained in psychiatry and became a military psychiatrist. I spent about 22 years in the military, but at the same time, I held a concurrent position as a business consultant to the National University Hospital Department of Psychological Medicine, as well as I was a visiting lecturer and later on became a adjunct associate professor of the Department of Psychological Medicine, NUS, at the time when I retired from the military in the year 2009. And from 2010, I have been working full-time with NUS and NUH, and uh, in the previous nine years, I was a head of department for Department of Psychological Medicine at NUS and NUH. And I moved on to become the director of Mind Science Center at NUS and NUHS full-time or rather full-part-time for the last two years. Wow, that's like really impressive. You wear like so many hats at once. <laughs> okay, so Prof, right, we have a very golden question to ask you. How are you feeling today? Oh, it's a part of a long day exercise. Uh, it's part of routine. And I guess it's a start of the week, so I think we are still feeling energetic. But of course, I always look forward to Friday. <laughs> yes, everybody is looking forward to that. Yeah, so uh, Lynn and I, we are quite like happy about like our current situation in Singapore because like at the current point of time, the government made such like drastic 
changes to the rules and everything, right? Like we can go out in groups of 10 and like just yesterday, I actually mentioned how like the nightlife uh, places can open up. So I guess a lot of people, it seems like life is really returning back to normal, but we have to acknowledge how COVID really changed the way we saw mental health in 2020. And I feel like among uh, youths especially, like everybody was quite open about their different journeys and so more have been reaching out for help psychologically as well. So do you think that will continue now that we're moving back to normalcy? I think that is one of the good things that has happened in that for not just the youth, uh, the adult population is also coming more aware of the importance of mental health, mental wellness and mental distress. And people are more prepared to talk about their anxiety, their sadness. So moving forward, I would say that I think we should encourage such openness and readiness. But I would be a little bit cautious. I'll be cautiously optimistic to say that it's not something we should take for granted that people will continue with this openness and this readiness to talk about it or even to seek help. Because as we return to normalcy, there's always this tendency that people may close up again. Either in back, we draw back into their comfort zone or decided that they just want to go back and live their, 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 their same life routine again. So I think we should encourage such openness and readiness to talk about mental wellness and pursue mental well-being, uh, but we should not take it for granted. Mm, that's true, that's true. Just now you mentioned quite a bit about how like of course, of the containment measures and everything. Do you think that there are any like mental health issues that will come to the surface as we adjust back, be it like adjustment disorders and everything? Uh, yeah, so I guess when we got thrown into the thick and thin of the COVID pandemic with all the changes and all the restriction, going back to so-called pre-COVID level, whether it's completely identical or, or with some variation or some changes, all these concerns change. And you know that there's this saying that in this world, the only certainty is there will be a change. And managing changes are not everybody's comfort zone. And it will be trying and uh, challenging for some people to go back or to enter the new phase of living with COVID. How do you think the mental health landscape changed for counsellor psychologists with the adoption of digital mental health services such as meditation app getting increasingly popular? I think digital mental health is a very interesting development that coincided with the, the happening of the COVID pandemic. To be very fair, locally and overseas, uh, we have been working and our partners, uh, our academic partners overseas have been working to develop digital mental health services with apps, with online programs as distant as 15 to 20 years ago. I still remember working with School of Computing with their postgraduate student and their faculty to develop a handphone app to help um, individuals with anxiety disorder to cope and manage with their anxiety symptoms. And that was almost 15 years ago. And that professor has returned back to European Union countries, his hometown. But of course, what has happened is that with the COVID pandemic, with the lockdown, uh, people were find impossible or inconvenient to see their therapist or to see their specialists, it became apparent that telemedicine or telepsychiatry or telecounseling became a obvious choice of convenience. So I would say that it was really a convergence of needs 
as well as a maturation technology, as well as availability of resource, government and non-government agency has put in a lot of money to develop apps. And I know that uh, many of the clinical psychologists have been hit-hunted by all this business development company or startup to develop therapeutic program online for them. So it's a wonderful opportunity. But I would say that a lot of people ask the question, would this actually eclipse the regular face-to-face psychiatric or psychologist services? I would say no, because there's a fundamental need to see face-to-face, to uh, make the first impression, make the first assessment. But what happens in the past before COVID is that there's a very significant dropout rate. I was just talking, checking with my colleague who was a head of department in one of the restructured hospitals. As distant as 10 years ago when he was just assumed a new uh, leadership position, he did a, a survey audit of the psychology service in his hospital and he realized that, uh, just let me check what was the figure he quoted. He quoted, among the many patients referred from the psychiatrist to the psychologist in the, in the department, 20 to 30% of the patients referred for their first appointment with psychologists did not even turn up. Mm. And uh, when they tracked four sessions completion rate, there were only about 15, 15% of the patient completing four sessions of psychotherapy. And it's quite appalling because, uh, as you know, uh, the protocol of psychotherapy, the first two sessions actually is normally used for the psychologist or even the psychiatrist who does therapy to get to know the patient and understand the psychological issues at hand to formulate treatment plan. So four sessions is basically is just getting to know the, the client or the patient and then starting to discuss and negotiate therapy. We only have about 1-5% of the patients referred actually reaching that stage. So there's a lot of wastage, there's a lot of dropout in the face-to-face services. So I would say that uh, there is a big gap and uh, I think digital mental health could provide an alternative to those who did not make it, provide those who couldn't attend all the sessions regularly. So I would say that it will be an opportunity to explore and exploit the digital platform to see how it can increase and enhance the capacity of therapy as well as making it more accessible. So I would say that digital mental health, the advent of it during this COVID uh, pandemic actually is a golden opportunity where people are more prepared and more ready. Right. Let's say for some people who do not have access, or like for example, they do not have like the you know financial capability to gain access to like um, psychotherapy and all the therapies that you mentioned above. What could be the next step forward in helping those that require this kind of treatment? Like what do you suggest? I think I would like to respond in two areas. The first area is that if you think that psychotherapy is part of the healthcare service provision, then obviously we must give credit to our government that they spare no effort, although sometimes it's wanting, but they spare no effort in trying to make sure that every citizen who need treatment, whether it's physical or psychological, will be able to assess it. The only challenge is that we ourselves and our patient, our clients, sometimes can be very choosy, can be very selective. While the national policy is to make available physical treatment or psychological treatment to every citizen, uh, but of course calibrated by the resources available and the demand at that point of time. 
but our patient, ourselves, and our people in Singapore uh, can be demanding. They would expect everything to be available to them. So, in terms of financial lack of financial resources and and the fear that they may not be able to assess the services, I would say that it is a risk, but it's not a big risk. But I do recognize uh, in our system is that. Our healthcare system do have funds for those who are underprivileged. Although the system of mean testing is not perfect, but it does provide uh, a, a, a way or means of making available some of these public resources to patients or family uh, who cannot afford. So I do have patients who actually come for treatment and because they cannot afford, they actually get reimbursement or get the medical social worker who knows the case and manage the family support system to apply for Medifund or public funding to support their treatment. So there is a way to do that. But of course, it's a little bit tedious, but it's possible. Then the second approach or second response to what if really the patient don't even have money to take a bus or take a public transport to the hospital or to the clinic to seek treatment, what is the best alternative? I would say that a wise counsel from an experienced friend or mentor sometimes can be useful and helpful for some of the situation. But obviously, the mentor and the wise counsellor who may not be a professional need to be very careful to support them in a way, in a way that is objective, not biased, and not infringing of some of the boundary issues. So, this leads to the, the point I'm trying to allude to is that while it's important to get professional help in mental health services, we should not forget that peer support and peer counsellor can be a very important resource. And if many of you recall when you were in secondary school and JC days, I'm certain that you have witnessed or, or observed that many of your friends were helped by their peers in the class or in the school. Uh, although it was not ideal because technically they should be seeing the school counsellor, seeing the school mental health team, seeing the um, hospital mental health services. But many of them actually overcome the rough patches in school, whether it's a relationship challenges or whether it's a study stress. They were able to write through these challenges. And I think this is where peer support and peer counselling in a limited way can be very useful. I think that's quite insightful and interesting because personally also, I think my friends really were my counsellors when I was growing up. And like, you know, we were each other's sounding board for the different things. And I I came from an all-girls school. So I think for like eating disorders, it's quite a prevalent thing. And like our friends were able to point out what was unhealthy and everything. And, and those like mental health stresses and all. So mentorship is definitely something that we need to remind ourselves that it's a good resource. Also, I think uh, a lot of people might not know that like, you know, NUS actually provides free counselling and these resources are actually very readily available for most of the students but a lot of them only know about it when when they want to help themselves or like you know they hear of peers and everything that they are going through like counselling then that's only when they know about the resources and I guess that's the adage of like you know you can only help someone if they want to help themselves holds true so like moving on to a little bit to like mental health literacy how do we recognise when we need help? 
how do we recognize when we need help? I think first and foremost, I think we, we, we need to have certain level of literacy. First is that we should help ourselves to be able to recognize our mood state, whether we are happy, we are sad, we are anxious, we are frustrated, we are angry. I think recognizing our own mood state and our emotion is probably the first step. If we don't recognize it, then I think it's very hard to realize that we need help. The second thing is that while we recognize and becoming aware of our, our own mood state and so-called mental wellness or ill health, then the next thing is to realize that sometimes the moment of distress, what is a threshold of tolerability? If it, be, it exceeds certain threshold that we are unable to bear with, then there's also another indicator that we need help. Uh, whether it's peer help or professional help, I think it depends very much on the com complexity and the, the seriousness and how acute the situation is. Then next is really knowing who or where to seek help from. So I think that is important. It's just that all of us have certain liking for certain hawker food, eh? being Singaporean. And since Miss Park has been living in Singapore for 20 years, I'm sure you also have the same experience. But knowing which hawker center to go to, where you can get the best chicken rice, best laksa, or best chakritiao, I think it's important knowledge, common knowledge. Of course, we can always do a Google search and see what is the rating on the, on the social media and on the web. But somehow we have this common knowledge. So I think we should, be, we should equip ourselves with some of this common knowledge mm -hmm. so that when we do find ourselves in situation that we are not in a comfortable position. I think those are triggers that we could say, hey, uh, maybe it's time to get some formal help or some professional help. Do you feel like parents have more of an impetus to have better mental health literacy after the pandemic? And what can we do to encourage more parents to maybe have these conversations or be open to talking about mental health? So I, I would say that uh, it's not so much of the generation cohort effect, but it's really their experience of dealing with their children in different phases of development. So for young parents in their 30 to 40s, chances their children are probably uh, belonging to the age of toddler to maybe 10 years old. Depends how early they started their family. So for that, that, that group of parents, I would say that parents with children of uh, 0 to 10 years old, their they are challenges of parenting and related understanding of mental wellness probably come in two aspects. One aspect is really the behavior challenges or the lack of behavior challenge, the compliant children uh, most parents would dream to have. And then the second is really the aspect of how the child responds and, and perform in the academic school system. I think these are the probably two biggest challenges that parents in their 30 to 40 will have to manage in terms of looking at their child's uh, mental health and wellness. Whereas for parents in their 50 to 60, obviously their children probably in their 20s, early 20s or mid-20s. So obviously, like the parents, you're in the university and some of your, the parents in the age group, they have children who have just started work, starting out their career. So their concern will be slightly different because uh, they'll probably leave your study very much to you. For those who are working, they probably will leave to the young professional executive to chart out their own career. What 
parents are concerned at the stage is really making sure that uh, their children, whether it be in university or in school or in the workplace, that they are happy and they have good friends and maybe get to know a good partner and develop a life partnership and then later on marry and settle down. So the, the challenges of parents in their 30s, 40s to compared to those 50s and 60s are slightly different and their expectations are different. But their cohort effect obviously would shape them differently also. Uh, older parents may come from the life experience that they have witnessed, how some of their friends, their colleagues were stigmatized by mental illness or mental distress. So they can be more careful and more sensitive and more worried of any stigmatization that may impact on their children if their children is suspected of experiencing any of the mental health distress. Where else? Parents in their 30s and 40s probably will have less of these worries because uh, most children in toddler age to 10 years old, usually the biggest challenge is really they cannot pass their Chinese language or mother tongue or they have been flagged up by teachers being naughty in class. So parents will be least worried that they will develop schizophrenia, they develop major depression, although some of our children can be very depressed in primary school. But usually that is due to different factors or expectation of academic achievement. Mm. So I would say that parents, different cohort, they will have to calibrate their own life experience, the phase of the family life cycle they are in, and that also will determine their expectation as to how open they can be with their child's uh, mental wellness or mental ill health. So besides having the knowledge to recognize mental health warning signs, I think it's really important to also build personal routines to take care of our own well-being. So Prof Wong, how does your mental health or self-care routine look like? Oh, I see. I, I think if you ask any Singaporean boys uh, who have survived NS, I think that would be a very good start guide to go with. So first is to make sure that you have a buddy with common needs or interests to journey together, <laughs> right? So in the army, you always pair with a buddy who look mm. after you and you look after them. Second, I think is that uh, we should have simple goals and routines for good physical health. Don't worry about the first January aspiration or, or the, the resolution <laughs> to lose 10 kilograms or to exercise uh, 10 times a week kind of thing. So set simple goals and routine for good physical health. And then the third is really to identify one or two areas of mental wellness goal. The mental wellness goal need not always be mental. Uh, first mm. and foremost, I think for many of the Singaporean, I would definitely suggest put sleep as a first priority. Because if you don't sleep well, essentially the next day we are already compromised at the start of the day. Second, I would say that be able to recognize what our mood state or our anxiety state is in for the day or for the week. Uh, being able to recognize it. And then the third area is really ask ourselves, how do we achieve or attain uh, good attention? Good attention is very important because it allows us to be aware of the present. It allows us to be able to get on the task and do it not double quick time, but in reasonable time without procrastination so that we have more time to rest or more time to play or to, to, to do things that we like. And then last but not least is really to practice mindful, compassionate self-care. I'm not trying to promote or advocate for, for mindfulness, but, but you, you realize that uh, at the end of the day, we need to be kind to ourselves. 
And being kind to ourselves is not to just indulge ourselves with the, the, the best food or the best travel holiday or, or the best physical luxury. But rather, in simple things in life is how do we take care of ourselves so that we will be able to have a good rest every day, to be well restored after a period or a prolonged period of exhausted assignment. And so the four simple areas, I think, about having a body with common needs or interest to journey, having simple goals, routines for good physical health, identify one or two areas of mental wellness goals and sleep, anxiety, mood, or attention, and the practice of mindful self-compassion. I think this will be a good, simple routine to start for most people mm. if they really care about themselves. Mm. Uh, last, last but not least, just a bit of digression, but related to what I said about sleep, anxiety, more attention. You notice that if anybody is overly engrossed with the use of digital device, essentially all this will totally be challenged or violated. We will probably be busy on our handphone, on our digital device, on our computer late through the night. So we will not sleep well or have enough hours to sleep. Our mood may swing, depending what we read on the Instagram, <laughs> on the Facebook of others. And of course, being so attentive uh, and so-called in our parents' eyes is addicted to the digital device, essentially, is that we will have difficulty being attentive to things around us. So I would say that the third simple mental wellness goal actually has to be calibrated carefully with the kind of digital device we are surrounded. But Prof, how about your own routine? Okay, my routine is, uh, I would say that I definitely have a buddy with common needs and uh, interest to journey together. Obviously, that's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Very sweet. <laughs> then the second, we try, like, we try. Not always perfect, but we try. Second is really to have simple goals and routines for good physical health. And I think I make it an effort I must say I have a busy schedule, a, a tight schedule from Monday to Friday. So Saturday, Sunday is really the time that I spend with my plants, I spend with my garden, I spend with my chicken. I, I keep pet chicken. Silky chicken? <laughs> they are not silky. I, 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 I keep benton chicken. Silky chicken and benton chicken is that some silky chicken are benton miniature, but silky has the, the extra feathers on the feet, mm. uh, which oh, is not okay. very convenient to maintain in our wet climate and humid climate. It's good for cold weather, so I have deliberately not to, to adopt silky chicken, although they look wonderful. Mm, that's, that's so nice. Like, okay. I feel like your, <laughs> yeah, your, your um, mental health routine sounds a lot like my mom's. <laughs> she loves her plants and she loves my very old dog also. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Lin? So how's your like, uh, mental health routine? Well, I feel like I shouldn't be the one answering this because I don't actually have a routine or like, I, I don't know, is it ironic? Because like, I think I'm someone who tends to overthink a lot during my free time. So like what I do as a form of like, you know, coping mechanism, which is to keep myself busy. So I don't think that's the healthiest, but like with reference to like what Prof said, right? I do have self-care whereby I make sure that I get enough sleep. Because for myself, I know that I really get affected by sleep a lot. Yeah, and I'm not the kind that can... I'm a light sleeper. So mm-hmm. once I wake up, right, I find it really difficult to fall back asleep. Yeah, and yeah, so it really affects my mood in the day. And then once I cannot function, you know, it becomes a vicious cycle whereby, you know, you cannot... 
you cannot focus on whatever you are doing, then you end up spending more time doing it, and then it, you know, drags into your sleep and all that. Yeah, so I do make sure that I get enough sleep at night. So I'm actually a morning person, so I make sure I sleep earlier, like maybe you know, latest 12 plus 1 a.m. Yeah, that's my latest. And usually I'll wake up at like by 7:38 a.m. Yeah. What about Janine? Um, I think like during the pandemic, because you know how we only had we only could like hang out with groups of twos at one point of time. Mm-hmm. So I changed a lot of my mental health like and or self care routine to going on solo dates and everything. So I had a lot of negotiation with my mom because she was very scared for my safety. More because I hang out alone with myself and she doesn't know where I am most of the time. Mm-hmm. So I go to the beach alone. The other day I actually went. Solo paddle boarding by myself, and it was going to rain. So like, she was very very worried because like you know the sea was very like choppy, and like she okay she doesn't know that I have done a lot of water sports. Uh. She thinks that I just like go on without not knowing anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, I plan those dates and everything. Then I take leave from work to to just go down to the beach and everything because I I love like going outdoors and all. And I I like to go on picnics by myself. It's mm-hmm. very very therapeutic because you can just people watch and. You know, I think it's so nice, and I'm very lucky that I still have time to slow down my routine. Yeah, because you know, like like prof, only weekends are are free for him to do that. But I have the privilege of having a weekday that I can just like do that kind of thing. So I'm very worried when I start work, what's gonna happen? <laughs> I can't just take leave every time I want. <laughs> True, it's hard when you know start to transition into adulthood. Yeah, and I really do agree the, on the part whereby you say like going on solo dates because like I really do enjoy you know going to cafe alone, just people watching, and you know you don't really have to accommodate to any anyone. Mm. Yeah, really just doing whatever you want on time on target. Yeah, and that's like the best part. Yeah, that's what Prof said about like expectations, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't have like too high expectations on like people around you. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Prof. John, for your time. And yeah, it's a, definitely a very informative sharing ex- uh, session. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. And I wish you all success in the coming exam. And <laughs> you are ready to graduate and wish you a good job career start. <laughs> thank you, Prof. That was definitely a very informative sharing session. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode today. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about mental health well-being, do Google Health Hub Mind SG. Otherwise, if you'd like to talk to a trained counselor online, do check out ec2.sg for e-counseling services. And for some NUS efforts, check out NUS My Science Center web link, for which we will be incorporating it over at our Instagram at Heart to Health Talk. That's spelled as H-E-A-R-T-T-O. H-E-A-L-T-H-T-A-L-K or subscribe to our Spotify podcast to stay tuned for more information about our series. That's all for today. And most importantly, while we transition towards the new normal, let's not forget the strides we have taken to improve our mental health landscape and well-being. Remember to ask your friends, how are you today? Oh, and your families too. I feel like those naggy moms reminding everyone about everything. (laughs) Okay, I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.